I was thinking about the difference between first century Christians and the 20 and 21st century Christians. The message that they preached in the first century was this, that to you it has been granted to, on behalf of Christ, to not only believe in him, but to suffer for his namesake. But the message of the 20th and 21st century, especially here in the United States, has not been that we should not only believe in Christ, but to also suffer for his namesake, but that we should believe in Christ and that by believing we will have this wonderful, glorious life, that there will be prosperity and riches. We have this different attitude, even though Scripture teaches uh, what Paul is teaching here throughout the New Testament. You're looking too far for that need you have inside. Welcome to The Cleansing Word. We invite you to stay with us as Pastor John Pinnell of Calvary Chapel Lake Villa takes us through a verse-by-verse study from God's Word. Each Monday through Friday, we'll be airing messages to encourage you in your faith that you might grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I hope that you enjoy this broadcast, and I'll return at the close of this teaching to give you more information about our church and how you can obtain a copy of this message. Now here's Pastor John with today's message from God's Word. In verse 19, he goes on to say, For I know that this will turn out for my salvation through your prayer and to the supply of the Spirit of Christ Jesus, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, I know this is going to turn out for my salvation. This salvation here is not referring to his salvation in heaven, but his deliverance from this prison. And in one sense, I believe Paul had this unsurety. He didn't know exactly how the trial was going to go. He couldn't know for sure that if Caesar would allow him to go free or would demand that he would be executed, eventually that would happen. But I believe he had this assurance, this belief that it was going to work out. And he gave some of the reasons that the church in Philippi, he said, your prayers, you're praying for me. And I know that that's going to lead to my deliverance. And also the second reason in verse 19, the supply of the spirit of Christ Jesus. God's spirit is with me in prison yesterday. And I don't have the book with me. I was thinking about bringing it and reading the story, but there were 23 men that were arrested and imprisoned by Al-Qaeda, Taliban, not too many years ago. And three of those men would be martyred for their faith. The rest were released. And so in this book we've been reading, the 23 were together and then divided by three into different areas and taken throughout the country. 
before they were freed, as I said, three would uh, give their life to Christ. And they said that last night they were together, the 23 that were together, they had one Bible, they ripped it into 23 different sections that they could hide on their body and take with them. But they said the nearness that they had with Christ, they had determined that they would be martyred for Jesus Christ, and they even argued who would be the first one to be martyred. The thing that was really unique was that later, after they had been released, after a few years, that there was this desire that they could be in that situation once again, only because the closeness that they had experienced with Christ Jesus while they were imprisoned. The supply of the Spirit of Christ was there with them. And they were probably as close as you could get to heaven, this side of heaven. They missed that. Once they were out, it changed. And, and I believe they needed to be out. They needed to be out telling their story and, and bringing others. Their being out would be for supply. As he would say, it'd be for the supply of faith the preaching of the gospel, to be able to help the church to grow. But that nearness that Paul no doubt experienced, that we already had mentioned and when he was imprisoned in, in Jerusalem, when Christ came and stood by him, he saw Christ. And Christ said, just as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you will testify for me in Rome. That there was this nearness that came. Pastor Chuck called this verse, verse 21, to me to live is Christ, to die is gain, a win-win situation. And the win-win is simply this, is that we win because living, we're able to magnify Christ, but we also win because in dying, we're able to go to be with Christ. And this confidence that Paul had, as he wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, in verse 1, he says this, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And in verses 6 and 7, so we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Verse 8, we are confident, yet well pleased rather to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So the win-win situation, while we're at home in this body, we have this opportunity to magnify, to glorify Christ, to live as Christ. But when we die, it is gain because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And then he goes on in verse 22. He says, but if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. For I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart to be with Christ which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and the joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus by my coming to you again. And I, I get this image of Paul writing and just imagining when he would walk into Philippi and being released and how the church would celebrate that he was there again. And I know it's not prison and I know it's not Philippi, but when Lily and I went out with our family to California that I could go to the school of ministry, that first Christmas, we leading up to that Christmas on the phone was just 
playing up our family, saying that, you know, it's going to be sad not being able to be with you guys for Christmas this year. And, and we were really, uh, really lying quite a bit because all along we knew that we were driving back and, and we were going to surprise our families. And, and, and both sides of the family used to get together, our, my family generally on Christmas Eve. And so we showed up when they were all together. I think they'd actually already eaten dinner. So we let them get comfortable. And we were actually for a while, we stopped in St. Louis and slept for four hours in a hotel. I was timing this all perfectly and then drove up that we could arrive. And they were so shocked, so surprised uh, that we were there. And, and maybe that type of celebration that can you imagine what it would be like that he is in prison? You're not hearing what is going on. Maybe they didn't get a letter in advancement saying that he had been released. But even if they did, when they actually saw Paul again, the celebration that would take place. But in this passage in verses 22 through 26, there is also Paul as a believer saying that, uh, he said, I'm hard pressed on what I should do that it seems that by his writing that Christ gave him an option. Paul, you can come home now, or you can stay and continue to work for me and serve on the earth. By reading through here, we get this idea that he decided to stay because he said, being confident of this, I know that I shall remain. So he had this confidence that he was going to be released, that he was going to get out, but he knew that living would result fruit in his labors, that to live is Christ. He knew that when he would go to Philippi, that it was needful for their progress, for their joy and faith, that he would see them rejoice. But he also knew that dying or his departing to be with Christ would be far better for him because his work on earth would be done and he would enter into his heavenly reward. Tradition tells us that Paul was released from prison at this time, took the gospel to Spain, and then uh, revisited the churches in Greece and in Asia Minor, and, and Philippi was part of the Grecian Empire there. And so he would have visited them then, and then rearrested in somewhere around 67 or 68 AD when he was finally put to death for his faith, uh, put on trial once again before the Caesar Nero, and arrested and put to death. But there is this undeniable change in Paul's writing. In his second letter to Timothy, where in the letter to the Philippians, Paul wasn't sure what his future would hold, but he had this faith, I'm going to be released, I'm going to see you again, we're going to rejoice together. But by the time he writes to Timothy in the second letter, he says this, and we, we see a man who comes to the end of his work here on earth, as he says in 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And so here in Philippians, although he says, I'm hard-pressed, I'm having a hard time deciding between the two, he has this, rather this confidence saying, I'm going to come and see you, and I'm going to keep encouraging you and your faith 
But by the time he makes and writes the letter in Second Timothy, it, from prison once again, he says his road was done. He was being poured out as a drink offering that he had fought the good fight. But he was looking forward at that point to die as gain. He said, there's a waiting for me, a crown of righteousness. And he was ready at that point to get his crowns. And then we close out with his word to the church in Philippi in verses 27 through uh, 29, where he says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or an absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which to them is a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and then that from God. For To you, it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his namesake, in verse 30, having the same conflict which you saw in me, now here is in me. So they saw it when he suffered, when he was stripped, when he was beaten, 10 to 12 years earlier, cast into prison, but now he says, you're hearing it from me. But also it's been granted on behalf of Christ, that not only you should believe, but you should suffer for his namesake. I'm going to get to that in a moment. But first of all, he said he wanted their conduct to be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whether I'm in your presence or not, you know that raising children, a lot of times they are better when mom and dad are watching than when mom and dad are absent or any other adult supervision at times. And Paul's saying I want you guys to have a conduct that is worthy of Christ, whether I'm there with you or not. Shouldn't that be the same for us today? Shouldn't that be our desire today that whether big brother's watching, not the government, but our walk and relationship with Christ, the fellowship that we have with Jesus Christ and God's Holy Spirit in us, shouldn't our conduct be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 says, Therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace, that they would be worthy, their conduct would be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Also, that they would stand fast in one spirit, having one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, that they would have this unity, not only of spirit, but unity within the church, that we have a mission that the Lord has given us, and we're striving together for the work of the gospel that God has set before us. And he said that they would not be terrified by their adversaries. He said the adversaries to them, referring to the adversaries, This is proof of perdition, that there are those who are against you. Well, it's just proof of the word of God. Jesus said, as they persecuted me, so they will persecute you. That this is proof of perdition, but also it's proof of your salvation that is from God, that God is working in you if you have enemies in Christ. Not the enemy of Christ, but because you believe in Jesus Christ, others Uh, dislike you or disapprove of you. It's proof that you're walking in faith. I was thinking about the difference between first century Christians and the 20 and 21st century Christians. 
the message that they preached in the first century was this, that to you it has been granted to, on behalf of Christ, to not only believe in him, but to suffer for his namesake. But the message of the 20th and 21st century, especially here in the United States, has not been that we should not only believe in Christ, but to also suffer for his namesake, but that we should believe in Christ and that by believing we will have this wonderful, glorious life, that there will be prosperity and riches. I, this morning, looked through some of the titles of books that have been written, uh, which is called a prosperity gospel or the health and wealth gospel. Titles of books like The Biblical Road to Blessing, Eight Steps to Create the Life that You Wanted, The Laws of Prosperity, Healing Promises, Prosperity, The Choice is Yours, Your Best Life Now, Seven Steps to Living at Your Full Potential. I was wondering if we took these same titles and put them in the first century church and what they might sound like. Perhaps the biblical road to blessing would be the biblical road to imprisonment. Eight steps to create the life that you wanted. Eight steps to create the life of suffering. The laws of prosperity, the laws of persecution. Healing promises, suffering promises. Prosperity, the choice is yours. Martyrdom, the choice is yours. I don't know if these would be on the top 10 bestsellers list. Uh, Your best life now, seven steps to living at your full potential. Your best life now, seven steps to suffer for Christ. And we have this different attitude, even though Scripture teaches uh, what Paul is teaching here throughout the New Testament. Even in the Gospels, Jesus referred to it in the book of Acts. When they were first warned to not preach in the name of Christ, they came back and in Acts 5.41, it tells us that they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his, his name. In Romans 8.17, it says that if we are children, then heirs, heirs of God, join heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. In 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul wrote, yes, And all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And Jesus wrote to the, uh, through John, but to the church of Smyrna in Revelation 2, 10, he said, Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. For indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you a crown of life. Now, there are some people who are looking for that crown here on this earth, but we've read of two crowns so far today, the crown of righteousness and the crown of life. If I'm going to get any crown, which I don't even wear hats too often, but if the Lord's going to give me one, I want, I want to go after the crowns that he wants to dispense. Not that the world gives, not that the world wants to give. As we close out, I'm not saying that we should look for opportunities to suffer. There are also different types of sufferings that a person can go through. I was thinking of these this morning, the loss of a loved one, the loss of job, the loss of one's health. Um, There's a lot of different things that we can suffer through. And I've learned that people watch as we go through these things. They watch if we are believers in Jesus Christ. They watch how we handle the situations that arise in our life and that through the way we handle it, if we are magnifying Christ, if the Lord is being glorified through our lives, 
then this emboldens them and their faith. And to think, well, if, you know, John can go through that or, you know, especially think of Lily going through her cancer, that it can give us faith to have confidence in our own condition. I heard that so many times when uh, Lily was, as I was journaling and bringing several people online with me with the journals, there's one pastor up north in Wisconsin that he saved all those things. I haven't looked at him in a long time. He saved my writings. He rereads them. And when he's going through a tough time, he reads my story. It's actually Lily and my story uh, combined together. But he gains confidence in his own situation. And we can do that. Maybe you don't journal it uh, by pen or by typing on a computer, but maybe just people watching your life in that way. For me to live is Christ, whether we are blessed with health or not, whether there is wealth or not. It is how we conduct ourselves as believers in Jesus Christ that matters during the times of the loss of a loved one or of a job or physical health. We are to be seen as trusting Jesus through hardships because we know that because of Jesus, because of his suffering, he can strengthen us through those times. And I ask this question, does the way that we handle hardship turn out for the furtherance of the gospel? Because that's what Paul said was happening with his life that his hardships was resulting for an advancement of the gospel. Does it turn out for the furtherance of the gospel? Are others encouraged? Are they emboldened by our faith in Jesus in all the circumstances of life? When we are tested, may we learn to be faithful until death, that we might receive from Jesus Christ, as he said to the church of Smyrna, and I will give you the crown of life to live as Christ. It means that to live, we have opportunity to display our faith in Jesus Christ, to testify of Jesus Christ, to magnify Christ, to bring glory to his name, to die is gain. When we die, our work on this earth will be done. Or will it? This week, I got a, a text from a friend. He was supposed to be visiting our church today, but he uh, texted me and said, you know, this is Tom, and this is the weekend I was supposed to come up, but it's not going to happen, maybe next time. And then he said, this Sunday I'm going to be teaching in our Sunday school class. He basically has a Sunday school class like I do, going verse by verse. He does that in his church for an adult Sunday school class. He says, I'm going to be in Romans 12, and I'm going to be able to share what your dad said I don't remember it, but I can hear my dad. Don't tell me that you love me. Show me that you love me. And I text him back, and I, I said, I don't remember my dad saying that. And he came back, and he said he said it in the context of saying that talk is cheap. It's easy to say that we love Jesus, but are we showing through our lives that we actually love Jesus? Now, my dad has been gone for been quite a while, and yet the words that he preached from a pulpit in Zion— maybe 30 years ago, are still resonating in someone's life today. You know, that can happen for preachers, but it can happen for us, whether we're a preacher or not. If we're living Christ before others, the things that we are doing not only can magnify Christ now in our lives, but may, and especially with our children and our grandchildren, may go on to that 
and we hope that it does, the next generation, the generation that follows them. How are we living? I pray that we are living to bring glory to the name of Jesus Christ. And Father, thank you so much for your word and the things that you have taught us through it. And I pray, Lord, that you would embolden us. And we read about the suffering that's taking places, uh, taking place in other parts of our world and the hardship that many of the churches, such as in Egypt or Iran or Iraq, and how some of these churches have to go underground just to share their faith. China is, is such a place like this. Lord, if they're willing to do such things to, as one pastor, I remember reading that the whole church service in China was met in darkness. The people were in the room, but they were in darkness because they didn't want to be um, found out that the church was there, but the room was crowded with believers. If they can do that in darkness, Lord, what could we do in the light and in, with the air conditioning and heat and everything that you've blessed us with. Lord, may we be more so emboldened to magnify and glorify your name, that we can live a legacy in such a way that we can also say to live is Christ and to die is gain. I pray this for us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Calvary Chapel is a fellowship of believers in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Our greatest desire is to know Christ and to be conformed into His image by the power of His Holy Spirit. If you would like more information about Calvary Chapel, or if you would like a copy of today's message, please contact us at 847-265-0646. That's 847-265-0646. Thank you so much for joining us today, and may the Lord richly bless you as you worship Him today. And let